This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week we have more on a major review of Māori media that was unveiled last week by the government, which is asking for feedback. Most journalists panned part of it that seemed to suggest a one-stop shop for Māori broadcast news and current affairs. Or did it? A whole lot of very intelligent, well-read broadcasters who have been in the industry for 25, 30 years, all us confused. I don't work in the banking industry. I work in journalism, so I have no idea what a, a clearinghouse means in the journalism context. But first, after so many COVID-free days lately, the return of fresh cases this week was a nasty shock, and it was reporters that lifted the lid on potentially fatal flaws in our system of quarantine. And that makes the revelations of the past few days dismaying, bewildering, unacceptable. You pick the word. People will arrive in the country with COVID-19. That's inevitable. The task is singular. Make sure the quarantine and testing regime prevents it from spreading. That was John Campbell on TVNZ's Breakfast last Thursday, summing up what a lot of people felt about those in charge of keeping carriers of COVID-19 from overseas out of circulation. You had one job. The national vibe changed in a big way after the announcement on Tuesday that we had our first fresh cases of COVID-19 for more than three weeks and that they were two people who should have been fully isolated. Now we know that an unknown number of people have left isolation without a negative test and this week the Prime Minister appointed a top New Zealand Defence Force officer to run the quarantine system, though News Hub later revealed he'd actually been made the person in charge of that about a month ago. And it was also announced that the Chief Ombudsman, Peter Bosia, will begin inspecting than quarantine facilities next month to make sure they're running properly. And on Thursday, he told John Campbell on TVNZ's Breakfast he was already well aware that things weren't exactly watertight. When my staff arrived, they found that they were in the reception area with an incoming plane load of people who were about to be put into quarantine. I found out about this the next morning, and as I've said, I was not a happy chappy because I felt my staff had been put at risk, had been compromised. Now, Peter Bosia was far from the only unhappy chappy this week after potentially fatal flaws in our quarantine system came to light, thanks to some dogged work from reporters, as Hayden Donnell now reports. On Saturday, June 13, Ashley Bloomfield posed for a photo next to a cartoon of himself as a halo-wearing saint in a Wellington store window. At the time, most news outlets were understandably focused on the country's return to normality. A new shopping development was opening at Auckland's Commercial Bay. The weekend Super Rugby matches were sold out. But while Dr Bloomfield grinned alongside his beatific likeness, two COVID-19 infected women were driving from Auckland to Wellington. They had been released from the Novotel Ellerslie early without being tested for the virus. At the same time, a woman who had been at the hotel with the pair and was now technically one of their close contacts was being sent home, also without a test. That woman's story, and many others like it, are only known because of the work of Kristen Hall. The one news journalist raised the alarm about failings in the country's quarantine facilities days before those slip-ups spiralled into a national crisis. This report from June 11 exposed dangerously lax procedures for dealing with quarantine guests at the Crown Plaza in Auckland. Unwittingly joining a managed isolation walk, the man in a suit walking right through a group who've just returned from overseas. Workers and general public are, are literally walking shoulder to shoulder past us and some of them join the group. I feel like I've been 
probably more exposed to the virus in this hotel than I have my whole time in the Philippines. Guests say there's been no social distancing enforced on walks or inside the Crown Plaza, where people from different flights have been closely mingling, like in the smoking room. Eight days And what about you, my friend? How long have you got? I live tomorrow. If stories like that one hadn't already aired, it's possible the Ministry of Health could have played off its failures at the Novotel Ellerslie as an isolated incident. Kristen Hall kept on the case through the week. Her story on Wednesday night revealed a children's birthday party had been held inside a quarantine facility, with kids who arrived on different flights, on different days, all attending. She's not the only one with concerns. Mal Langsford said this gathering for a child's birthday with passengers from different flights was organised by health officials at Auckland's Waipuna Lodge. She then proceeded to blow out the candles um, and then a Ministry of Health worker who was assigned to the hotel then came and cut the cake. News Hub's investigations editor Michael Mora came through with a concerning story of his own on Wednesday. He revealed a large group of people had been allowed out of a quarantine facility in Christchurch to attend a burial in contravention of the government's Alert Level 1 rules. Also on June 9, the Ministry said all those leaving will require a negative test result before they leave. Steve Parkin said no one could confirm to him if they'd been tested and as they hadn't completed their quarantine, he refused to allow the group to attend the funeral. However, the group did attend the burial anyway, where 150 people were present. They were accompanied by a DHB nurse. There's some work to be done, certainly, to tidy this up. Mora has also covered failings in the Ministry of Health's distribution of PPE to hospitals and care facilities across the country. His stories were backed up by a report on PPE from the Auditor-General this week, which found organisational failures and mixed messaging from the Ministry. The wave of bad press appears to have robbed Ashley Bloomfield of his halo, at least temporarily. This is News Hub's political editor, Tover O'Brien, speaking to Mike McRoberts on Wednesday. Tova joins us now. Tova, where's the Director General of Health on all of this? Mike, MIA, Ashley Bloomfield was missing in action today after being the face of the COVID-19 response on your screens every day when suddenly there were very serious questions to answer. He's disappeared, refusing to be interviewed, refusing to hold a press conference. And we understand that was a directive from the Prime Minister's office. When Ashley Bloomfield did front a media conference the next day, Tova O'Brien had this question about his initial incorrect claim that the two COVID-infected women from Novotel Ellerslie hadn't had contact with anyone on their way to Wellington. How can anyone trust anything that you say? Well, I hope that people will trust what I say. You stated as fact what these women were telling you. It was wrong. So why should we trust anything that you say? Uh, because on Tuesday, that was the extent, full extent of the information I had. The women told health officials on Tuesday night they had seen friends for directions when they got lost. The officials apparently didn't think it was worth passing on. News Talk ZB's Mike Hosking also grilled Ashley Bloomfield on Thursday. This is the tail end of a heated interview where he repeatedly called on the Director General of Health to resign. So the question's simple. How many people have left the hotel without being tested? I do not know that number. But How no on earth can you not know that number? Since the 2nd of, uh, since uh, two days ago, unless they've been tested, Mike, and that's what I'm taking responsibility so for. So there's potentially, what, half a dozen, a dozen, 20, 30, uh, 50, 100, or we Mike, literally don't know? Let me go back. We have had managed isolation in place for several months with people going in. 
and and and, uh, and undertaking 14 days of that isolation without any testing. We added the testing in once we moved to alert level one. We moved rapidly. It didn't get implemented. Ashley, you as didn't, well as you didn't implement the testing because yeah. we've got numerous stories of people not being tested. Look, uh, Mike, just to reiterate, it has now been fully implemented and I'm providing that assurance. And my team and I are very focused okay. on making sure that happens. The fact that Ashley Bloomfield was on Mike Hosking's show making that commitment was partly thanks to the collective efforts of reporters like Kristen Hall, Michael Mora and others including News Hub's Patrick Gower. Their stories have fueled a public outcry over the Ministry of Health and the government's failings and put pressure on them to enact urgent reforms to their inadequate systems. If those reforms are successful and New Zealand avoids a COVID-19 catastrophe in the coming weeks, we can thank good, persistent reporting for making us all a little bit safer. Hayden Donnell there on how reporters lifted the lid this week on a series of potentially fatal flaws in our quarantine system. All this began with the Director-General of Health, Dr Ashley Bloomfield, revealing on Tuesday two fresh cases of COVID-19. And announcing that news on Tuesday, Dr Bloomfield seemed to have a message for those who had criticised the harsh restrictions on funerals. Today's news underscores the recent decision to not grant exemptions to attend funerals or tangihanga, where there may be large groups of people present. And there were some pretty loud voices in the media condemning him for failing to grant more compassionate exemptions in the past, which are now at the heart of our current problems. I don't know how we have ended up in this country with a health ministry so heartless and a Director General of Health who isn't sorry that this is happening. He says that his team are empathetic, but they are not. They have declined all requests for exemptions. Well, this past week the media did a good job in exposing cases of the system falling down, but big-name broadcasters like Heather Duplessy-Ellen there haven't been as keen to revisit their own calls to grant more compassionate exemptions in the past. I took a look at that in this week's Midweek Media Watch with Karen Hay on The Lately Show. That's on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website if you missed it, or the RNZ app, or you can find it in the Media Watch podcast feed. Last weekend here on Media Watch, we heard how the Minister of Māori Development, Nanaia Mahuta, released Tao Papaho Māori Hearaho, a report setting out long-awaited and long-overdue proposals for revamping publicly funded Māori media. Twenty months had passed since the Māori media sector shift was fired up in October 2018, and a panel of five experts was appointed last year to make recommendations. But some in that Māori media sector were not happy with one aspect of what emerged last week. The plan proposes a single news service at Māori TV. All Māori media would have access to its content and iwi media could contribute. Māori are being ghettoised um, to just one voice and that's simply unfair. TV producer Annabelle Lee Mather telling NewsHub at 6 last week a one-stop shop for Māori news at Māori television would not be good for the diversity of Māori broadcast journalism overall. Currently, the Māori Broadcasting Funding Agency, Tamangai Paho, funds news and current affairs like Three's weekly show The Hui, produced by Annabelle Lee Mather and her production company Great Southern Television. The Hui is made with support from New Zealand On Air. And Tamangai Paho also funds long-running shows for TVNZ, such as Takarere, Wakahuya and Marae, also produced these days by independent production companies. But last week, TVNZ One News reported that one-stop shop idea 
like this. Television New Zealand says it wants funding for news to be openly contested. Oh yeah, we're going to fight. The voice of Navak Rogers, a former head of content at Māori Television, who's now TVNZ's commissioning consultant of Māori and Pacific programmes. She said the one-stop shop for news proposal was a shock to her, but it's been on the table for a long time, even before the Māori media sector shift review began. Tamangai Pahu's chief executive Larry Parr had suggested funding fewer news shows and newsrooms so better resourced ones could be seen and heard right across Māori media. Now, back then, Nabak Rogers said, in a piece for the online site Etangata, she hoped the review would confront problems festering away for 25 years or more, and she told RNZ that a powerhouse was a good idea. I feel that, you know, the fragmentation of uh, broadcasting, and in particular journalism, I'm a journalist first and foremost, the fragmentation of um, journalism and broadcasting over the, you know, the past 20 years has actually not been a good thing. That's my personal view. Um, And so I feel that, you know, we've got an opportunity to bring together those resources and make a powerhouse. Whatever that looks like, it's got to be good for um, both mainstream as well as, you know, Whakata Māori and our Iwi Radio Network. But last week, Nivak Rogers' message was different. There has been a lot of talk lately about plurality of voice and how important it is, she said, and yet now we're looking to be going in the opposite direction. But Nivak Rogers was just one of several Māori journalists, editors and programme makers making that point last week. And on Monday, political reporters put that to the Prime Minister. Some Māori media, the Hui, Manai, Te Karere, are worried about their future off yeah. the back of the Māori media proposals. Yes. Um, does it provide for a plurality of voices yes, it as does. we have with mainstream? Yeah, unfortunately, I, I think probably what's being proposed here has uh, uh, unfortunately been um, misinterpreted, or it certainly is not our intention to lose that those range of voices when it comes to current affairs and news um, within Māori media. Uh, what, um, uh, what we're simply consulting on is this notion of having a bit of a clearinghouse, but not a reduction in programming. Now, some were annoyed to be told by the Prime Minister there that they had misinterpreted Tapuni Kokari's report. It pretty clearly says, Tamangai Paho currently funds a number of Māori news services and this is not sustainable. And then the Minister, Nanaya Mahuta, stated pretty clearly, I propose that a single Māori news service be located within the Māori television service. Now, when pressed by reporters about the future of key Māori news and current affairs shows we have on air now, Jacinda Ardern said this. Do you have a commitment that we, we won't lose those Māori media services like the Hui? Yeah, and so that's actually one of the examples I'd give. Um, the intention isn't to reduce access to funding sources for those multiple programming options. Uh, and so that's where I think, unfortunately, that's been misinterpreted. That's not our intention to lose that range of, of voice and programming options, but to create a clearinghouse for some of these um, different operations. But just what is a clearinghouse when it's at home and what exactly would it accommodate? Well, all this, the Prime Minister reminded reporters, was merely a proposal now up for consultation until the end of this coming week. But this past week, that consultation got underway with online engagement hui, and as Hayden Donnell now reports, people in the Māori media sector have grave concerns about the Māori media sector shift review and specifically that one-stop shop for news. Māori news come in for a little bit discussion uh, recently. Uh, the concept here is a clearinghouse for uh, news and uh, potentially current affairs uh, as well. That was Tapuni Kokiri's representative, Darren Ponta, on the fallout from the Ministry's proposal for a Māori One News service. 
That so-called discussion was more like an all-out rebellion. The spin-off Duncan Grieve wrote a scathing story about the proposal, with the headline, It would set fire to all progress. Stuff wrote a story saying the plan was running into flack. But the most fervent criticism came from Mahingarangi Forbes and Annabelle Lee Mather of TV3's show The Hui, which is co-funded by Tamangai Paho and New Zealand On Air. In a column for Stuff, Mahingarangi Forbes compared Māori media to Fai Kōrero on a marae, where speakers build on each other's ideas. Both she and Annabelle Lee Mather asked why the government believes plurality of voice is important for other public and commercial news companies, but not for Māori media. At the online hui on Thursday, Darren Pontar seemed to say all those criticisms were based on a big misunderstanding. This is what he had to say in response to a question from Mahinganangi Forbes. You're sure that the clearinghouse is just the clearinghouse and not a one news service? Um, in terms of the uh, conversations that we've uh, had around that, it is uh, it is a clearinghouse. To be fair, I think you know, I mean, you're, you know, the issues that you've raised in terms of it could have been clearer. Uh, Mia Kopa, I think that, that that is a fair comment uh, from, from your perspective. I asked Mahinganangi Forbes and Annabelle Lee Mather whether they buy that explanation from Darren Ponta and if they still have concerns about Tapuni Kokiri's plans. Kia ora Mahinganangi and Annabelle, thank you for coming to the Media Watch Enclave. Kia ora, thanks Tēnā for having us. Now, there's been a lot of uh, contention over the Māori Media Sector Review, and you guys have led the charge. And can you just explain what your primary problem is with the draft report that has come out? For me, it's um, the idea of a single news model, because we just had been doing interviews with Grant Robertson, the finance minister post-COVID, over the importance of plurality of voice and the $50 million first trance funding for mainstream organisations so they could stay in the biz, and then with a promise of a, an indication that the second lot would be for quality journalism. So my question to the minister is why don't we have the same opportunity in Māori journalism, you know, creating a clearinghouse or a single news model means that we won't have plurality of voice and I fear that because I've been a recipient of a big boot on my backside from Māori television in the past. Uh, it was an online hui this morning, we all attended. They said, oh, you've just misunderstood it. It was meant to be what they called a clearing house. A whole lot of very intelligent, well-read broadcasters who have been in the industry for 25, 30 years, all us confused. So if it's been misrepresented... A single news service, to me, implies a news service as we all know it to be, a provider of news and content. It seems now they're saying that instead of it being a single news service, it's a single clearinghouse. To me, um, up until today, that's provided no clarity because I don't work in the banking industry. I work in journalism, so I have no idea what a, a clearinghouse means in the journalism context. As it was explained to us, it's uh, a news distribution service whereby multiple um, news or current affairs programming will will continue to be funded, that in an ideal world um, it will all be um, shared across to a new um, centre which aggregates that content and, and shares it out amongst the wider media community. To me it seemed pretty clear because it was prefaced with a note about how um, Te Māngai Pāho 
currently fund several news and current affairs services and that was no longer sustainable. So I'm not sure if actually what we're seeing is a little bit of a, of a turnaround following opposition and concern that's been expressed over the last week. Whose fault is it, the confusion over the single news service? Is it just that the document is badly written or have we all just misinterpreted it? I don't care about fault. I just want it to change and I want it to be a better environment for every Māori that has aspirations of working in our industry because it's one of the best jobs ever. I just want it to be better, I want it to be more equitable and I want it to be a fairer place. It was said today in the hui that the people who had the initial round of, of conversations with people in the industry are not the same people who went on to, to author the, the document, so perhaps that's been part of the part of the breakdown. Is there some merit to the idea of a of a single centralised source which everyone can draw from? Like would the hui, for instance, benefit? I think all of us support the proposition of, of sharing content. I mean, the Hui plays on um, on News Hub's 6pm um, bulletins. It gets shared across to Māori television and is replayed during the week. All of us, I think, you know, the, the more eyes, the better. But there are some complexities around commissioning platforms often put in a lot of resource of their own and so they have expectations around a certain amount of plays and how that's shared and what platforms it can be put on so it's an area that really needs a lot more discussion and those relationships are really really full-on and important because you have to have a level of trust of each other's journalism to be able to just pick it up and then run it on your on your platform because ultimately you're responsible for what you publish. Mm. But you guys obviously do have a little bit of self-interest here. You've been the loudest voices in criti- criticising the single news service, but obviously you guys do get funding to produce the hui. That could be at risk. How much of what you've expressed is fear over your own future and how much is just concern for the wider Māori media sector? For me, I mean, I think it, it wouldn't be um, difficult for me and Mahi to find other Mahi. We've, we've, done the, we've done this before. We've left jobs before without having our next job when we've taken a stance on a particular issue. For me, this is just about the absolute unfairness of watching tens of millions of dollars be poured into private media companies when I know that my my side of the industry has been underinvested in for decades and that people, you know, desperately need the, the money and the focus and the energy poured into them. So for me, this is not um, just about the, the preservation of the hui. It's really an issue of fairness and equity and about the Crown being a good, responsible treaty partner when it comes to this issue. There's a saying, ka mati kainga tahi ka ora kainga rua, and I've learnt to make coffee. And it means when one thing fails, you always have a backup plan. So, yeah. <laughs> I was Great. quite a fantastic waitress back in the day, Coffee to be cart. fair. No, I know. I, say, I mean, absolutely we have conflict in this mm. because we receive um, taxpayer broadcasting money for, Māori, for the Māori sector. But I'm with Annabelle. Uh, I'm past caring about that. Um, you know, we will find jobs somewhere else if we have to. We've worked in mainstream and someone will take us back somewhere. But it's about... You know, it's about the future. Uh, so, Mihingarangi, your your article and stuff, uh, you compared the current situation 
Uh, we have Te Karadi, uh, the Hui, um, other Māori news services uh, to Fai Korido on a marae. So could that actually take place... Could that take place within a single news service that's generated by Māori TV? I think if it was a news distribution centre, absolutely. But you are then going to still have to fund the hui, fund marae, fund te karere, fund te ao, fund te ao with moana to have this you know, rich selection of different news angles. So if you talk about that whai kōrero where, um, you know, Hayden, you... you you read into it one way, Annabelle hears it another way, I think of it another way, and then we exp- then we go home and tell all our friends how, how the fire court went down. That's multiple agencies. We're talking about multiple news sources. So we're right back to where we are. And the problem with, I guess, centralising it in Māori TV is that you guys have had your issues with Māori TV, right? With Native Affairs and what you saw as editorial interference from them. It was under a previous administration. But do you have concerns with them, I guess, administering at least a news sharing service? We love that kaupapa. We Mm. started our careers to work in Māori broadcasting. And when you have a single news organisation, at times you can have great leadership and you can have not so great leadership in terms of journalism. And my experience was that I was leaned on, told that we couldn't run certain angles and certain stories of people in power, and that went against everything that I believed in in terms of my journalism. So my concern would be for the future that we had a set up like that again. I'm not saying that that's what we would have here and now. I'm just saying it's happened to me in the past. Mm. We know that there's money in the bank post-COVID because they're just handing it out all over the place, mm. you know, for good reason. But um, Māori, broadcasting, Māori broadcasting is also good reason, and we have been underfunded for 30 years. And um, I tell you what, you just don't understand it unless you've worked at Māori Television. When I was there producing Te Kaya, you know, our people there are poor. They, can, you know, they can't even. They're falling out of housing. Um, they've got, you know, money problems and stuff because they're just not paid enough. This is journalists. This is across the board. So you know, I was just thinking of another example. Is like, unlike camera operators at TV3 or TVNZ, we had a submitter today at the Hui that said Māori journalists mm-hmm. start on. $30,000 and they might get to $55,000. That's a lot less than mm. you get in just mainstream Absolutely. commercial organisations. It's across the board. It's like 20, I think the survey that uh, Ngāho Whakari did, which is the um, organisation that looks after the media industry, Māori media industry, is that 20 to 25% of us have worked for Aroha, mm. you know, for free. We've worked just because we felt like we should. And so many of our young people don't get paid and they hold booms and they come onto film sets or they come along journalism or they come and sit at Māori television um, or, or in Māori media to try and just get a f- foot in the door. It's just not the same as mainstream. There's just not enough to go around. There's yeah. massive um, equity issues facing our part of the of the sector, and by that I mean the New Zealand media sector. Um, you know, there's issues around... Uh, equity issues around um, pay, there's equity issues around, you know, cost per hour um, production, Um, there's challenges in terms of um, retaining staff and development. This 
review was an opportunity for us to ask ourselves some of the really difficult questions like, is a linear television station the best vehicle for revitalising te reo, normalising mm. the te reo, um, providing news and entertainment and content to Māori audiences, or is it time that we look at a different model? None of us are saying that the status quo should remain. We know that we have to change but it feels like this document doesn't really ask those challenging questions and it's a shame because it's a missed opportunity. I think I understand after today what the whakaaro or what the the thinking around it was is that plurality of voice in Māori media is important, but the question is, and it always comes down to money and equity, and mm. so our industry is underfunded. So just say, for example, there was ample money for Māori journalists to be working inside of RNZ and TVNZ and TV3 and NZME and stuff and the rest of them, then perhaps, you know, having a single Māori news service, which was Tuturu and Te Reo Māori, might actually be okay because Māori are getting mm. their news all over the place, mm. but that's not the case. That was Mihi Narangi Forbes, host of the weekly current affairs show The Hui, which screens on Sundays on 3, and she's a former presenter and reporter also at RNZ and Māori Television, and we also heard there from Annabel Lee Mather, producer of The Hui and an executive producer at the production company Great Southern Television. The deadline for submissions on the government's Māori media sector options report, Te Ao Pāpaho Māori, He Araho, is coming up at the end of this week. That's Friday the 26th of June. And you can find links to that report, including questionnaires and feedback forms, in the online version of the story. That's on the MediaWatch page of the RNZ website. On Morning Report last Wednesday, Susie Ferguson asked the National Party leader Todd Muller this when they were discussing what he said was a lack of transparency over Labour's selection of public health expert Dr Aisha Verrill as a candidate. Do you see any symmetry here between you obviously considering a run for the leadership and then not declaring it? Simon Bridges had to essentially declare your interest there. And also Matthew Hooten, who was talking you up for days and days and then is now part of your office? No, look, I think I'm talking about public service um, uh, individuals. How's it different? It's about influence, isn't it? No, it's about conflict of interest in a public context. Todd Muller has also been asked recently about having in his corner Australian political consultants Crosby Texter, or dark arts kingmakers, as Stuff's political reporter Andrea Vance recently described them. And that firm certainly has helped the National Party in the past, as well as working to get the Liberal Party elected in Australia and the Conservatives in several campaigns in the UK. But before Crosby Texter became well known for that, the PR firm Bell Pottinger was the one the Tories turned to in the UK to design campaigns to win British people's hearts, minds and votes. That firm and its founder Tim Bell, later Lord Bell, became notorious for not being squeamish about taking on international clients with shocking reputations. But little was known exactly about what they were doing for them in the shadows. Now, all that changed after an inquiry found that it had run a secret campaign to stir up racial tension in South Africa on behalf of billionaire clients. And that exposure killed the company off entirely and sullied the reputation of Lord Bell, who died in the middle of last year. But before that, he opened up to South African journalists Diane Neal and Richard Poplack, makers of an eye-opening documentary called Influence. I've had just about every piece of filth written about me. I just 
told the truth for once, told the whole story. Maybe I'll be better judged. The story of Timbal is really the story of influence over the last 50 years. Influence is screening tomorrow, Monday the 22nd of June, at the Dock Edge Documentary Film Festival, this year being held online only for COVID-19 reasons. You can visit the Dock Edge website for details, dockedge.nz. And it's on again on July the 1st and next Friday evening, the 26th of June, after which I'll be hosting a Q&A session with the makers, Richard Poplack and Diana Neal. And next week here on Media Watch, you can hear more about the extraordinary story of Bill Pottinger and how Richard and Diane lifted the lid on the shady world of political influence for hire. And finally on Media Watch this weekend, last weekend here on Media Watch, we mentioned how much News Talk ZB's sportscaster Martin Devlin was looking forward to the return of live rugby well ahead of the rest of the world. I mean, look at the rest of the world. How much live professional sport is going to be played in the rest of the world? But soon after mentioning him on our programme last Sunday, he was back on the air mentioning us. That stupid show on RNZ, the Media Watch, I'll be looking into us again as well. At least my taxes are going to a good cause, aren't they? Oh dear, what was it Martin said this time that would get our attention? Well, turns out nothing he said. It was broadcaster John Campbell appearing on his show. Also as excited as Martin Devlin as it turns out about the rugby being back, but John didn't realise he was live on the air. And my father, who wasn't very good at kind of suppressing what he felt, decided to... Ah, you've just dropped oh, no, it! No, 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 and I think someone to me, can you go and tell that old bastard to shut Hey, that's the third one. You've just dropped and we're live on the air, you fuck. Oh, no. oh my God. Oh, no. Jason, Jason, there wasn't, it didn't go on. It didn't go live. Well, both of those F-bombs did go out live, much to Martin Devlin's alarm, but he handled it pretty well. Your apologies, ladies and gentlemen. John didn't know that he was on. This is what happens. We've all got a potty mouth when we're not on the air. There's something happens in the studio. You turn the red light on and, yeah, all of a sudden, it's like having dinner with your grandmother, isn't it? And Bernadine texted through as well to say, yep, they came through, Martin, loud and clear. Yes, they did. But as Martin Devlin said there, it can happen to anyone. It's no biggie. But fun to hear all the same, especially when it comes from a big name in the media. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but Hayden Donnell will be back with Midweek Media Watch, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show at about 10.30 next Wednesday night. And then we'll be back with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.